welcome back to girl meet game and today i have a very exciting episode in mind the conversation has been going on for a while of whether at the beginning of each generation so the price of games be 60 or 70 dollars today's episode is extra special because i have my favorite guest my husband welcome to the show babe hey thank you for having me very excited to be here and uh, probably help my opinion a little bit. Right. So he's our resident expert in the gaming space. I've talked about him plenty of times. But I kind of want to start with this. When you're, fi- when you're buying your first game, you might look and see on Amazon or at GameSpot that the brand new game you want, the brand new Call of Duty, is $60.00. And that's kind of just what's already been established. When you go and look with whoever might be more kind of attuned to gaming than you are, you'll see a lot of people are talking about, oh, well, what if games were $70? $60 when you're not a gamer already sounds like a lot. So $70 might be kind of questionable. So. With that, I'm actually going to turn it to you, babe. 60 versus $70. Is it worth it to pay those extra $10? Well, I think the situation is kind of complicated. Because right now, the $60 game has been around for a little bit over a decade now. We really saw the switch when going from PlayStation 2 to PlayStation 3. Um, and with that, at the time, we started seeing a jump in graphical fidelity. Now, the other thing that was introduced at that exact same time was the subscription model. See, we actually got Xbox Live being charged for us with things like Halo and, you know, Gears of War and stuff like that on the 360, and it kind of increased the value. So, not only were we paying $60 compared to 50 the jump of $10 was also added to the fact of a monthly subscription service to even play games online. Now, I think this time we're looking at a situation where games have already been charging more, whether it be through different things and different avenues. We're seeing a situation where right now, if you go uh, at the day of uh, recording, this is July 11th in 2020, and Ghost of Tsushima is about to come out. And right now on the PlayStation Store digital, you can buy the game for $10 more for $70, and it comes with a few digital goodies, but in reality, that amounts to nothing. It really has no value. So they're already offering people a price jump of just $10 and wondering if people are willing to pay that for just slightly more really insignificant things. Right. You've mentioned the monthly cost of playing online. I've seen you do it a million times before. Do you think that maybe this extra $10 might incorporate into maybe taking away having to pay that monthly fee to those platforms? Well, you see, that's my major issue with it, is that the the platform holders, whether it be Sony or Microsoft or Nintendo, they are the people charging for that online service. Now, the game's prices are wholly put by the actual publishers of the game. So we're talking the Activisions, the Blizzards, the EAs. Now, they have no say in whether internet is free. See, on PC, whether it be through Steam, Origin, Uplay, or even Epic, you don't actually pay to play online. 
So the biggest argument is that for games to jump in price again without them really actually giving anything tangible and benefit, especially considering that arguing that because graphics look better or games cost more, it should therefore, you know, cost more to make. It should therefore equate to games costing $70. It's kind of a moot point once you look at the realization that PC games have always looked better than console games and always have the ability to do more. And those games have to be optimized for console. So I think the biggest issue is that the justification behind it is more of the issue, especially with connecting with a lot of other points that cause contention. Right. So as you can see, the argument of $70, those $10 more, lays in this kind of ambiguous space because, as my husband was saying, people want that extra value. You can't just ask for $10 more and give nothing back in return. The PC platform, as we've talked about, is such a diverse space. And whatever money you throw into your computer, you're going to be able to get that benefit in your gaming rig. I'm, I'm correct in saying that, right? Well, yes. I mean, traditionally, if you make educated purchases, at least, spending more money will equate into more performance to a point with gaming. Wonderful. Okay, so the next thing that comes up that you kind of touched on a bit was microtransactions. Now, we on this platform don't really know too much about how microtransactions actually equate to the bigger picture. I've made an episode that kind of touches on how it brings in more money, but it's also not really loved by hardcore gamers. So what does microtransactions and monetizations really play into or against this argument for $60 games versus $70 games? Well, that's a good question. See, right now, the game that has confirmed itself to have a price of $70 for the next generation for the PS5 is the new 2K title. Now, the biggest outcry about that is that not only is it a yearly derivative uh, product, the fact is the major change is really a roster of teams. Now, the other issue that people have, especially with regards to monetization, is that the game is riddled with microtransactions. Now, that's usually more of an issue for the hardcore mainstream gamer. Uh, I mean, hardcore gamer as compared to the mainstream gamer. And, and the reason for that is because most people who only pick up that game are happy to spend 10, 20 more dollars on it just to get those benefits. And the issue really continues when you realize that these games, especially the big sports titles, uh, they make more money off of microtransactions and monetization post-launch and post-sale. So after they sold the original unit of 60 or now $70, they make more money on things called the Ultimate Team, where you can kind of uh, buy digital card packs for a chance to win your favorite player, or perhaps a player that might not be your favorite, but might have better stats to give you an actual pay-to-play or pay-to-win experience by the more you spend, the higher chance you have to get a better character. So that game, 2K, it kind of 
is not something you want to start out with, ladies. Like, if your man plays Madden, FIFA, any of those sports, EA Sports titles, this might sound a little bit more familiar to you because you might have seen the coins, the transactions, and it kind of not made sense at the time. But essentially what's happening is that if you pay money, you might not even get the character or the, the product that you might want that has no actual value outside of the games. I did touch on a little bit in a different episode. If I haven't, I definitely will. But about how that is indeed gambling, whether the, the gaming ESRB wants to admit that it is that so. If you like sports games, stick stick to the shows for now, stick to the games. Don't go into the video games for now because right now all my husband is really saying is you're going to have to spend more than the $60 anyway. In fact, you're going to have to spend more than the $70 to have an enjoyable experience, which in the long run might cost you or a loved one a lot of headache for no reason especially if you have kids around but it's not all bad there is some benefit to bringing up from 60 $60 games to $70 games for the studios and a little bit the publishers I think because as it is right now There is horrible, stressful practices on the people who make games right now. And it's a lot of work that they unfortunately aren't even seeing much money back from that. So some might see it argued that maybe we should have games at $70 because some of those monies might go back to the studios or the people actually putting in the work to make the games, you know, your favorite games. My question to you is, babe, is there actually any relevancy in those intangible benefits to studios that actually might amount to dollar amounts that matter? Now, with that, there has been a lot of discussion in every side of the camp there. However, one big thing that I kind of have been missing in the discussion is the fact that When we look at a platform holder like Epic, you know, known for Fortnite, uh, their cut from most games using their engine is very low. I believe somewhere close to 12%. Now, that's notable because if you buy a game from Xbox or PlayStation or whatever you choose, see, those companies are taking 30% of the sales price. Now, if you're buying a physical game, the actual studio that makes the game could end up with as little as eight percent of what you're actually paying now i find the issue to be that rather than increasing the cost on the user making the end consumer pay seventy dollars it is actually very feasible for that cost to actually be transferred to the platform holders if we saw a world where the 30% take by Sony, Microsoft, and Nintendo turned to a 20% stake, it's very feasible that there would be no need for an increase in price whatsoever. Not only that, but coupled with the fact that there's a very big pervasive issue with 
executives getting more of a cut than they really deserve while hiring contractors to finish up certain games. We're seeing a situation where $70 might not actually amount to anything for the people working on the game. So there is definitely a benefit, but whether that benefit be to the people working on the game, you know, sweat, blood, tears, or just to the people marketing and the executives calling the shots and increasing their bonuses and making them seem more, you know, profitable to shareholders, that might actually be leaning towards what the actual end goal of a $70 game really leads to. So the plot thickens. Would there be a way that maybe the publishers or the platforms, I believe, can justify taking that hit? Because when they come out with the new PlayStation, the new Xbox, the new Nintendo, they're already usually, from what my husband has told me, usually, they're already taking a $100, $200 cut on making the system, which is has always usually been the argument for why you pay a monthly subscription. So how is it that from a publisher, I keep saying publisher, I mean platform, <laughs> from the platform perspective to justify taking that $10 hit or more? Well, we're talking percentages, so the actual hit could be more or less. But the bigger thing to remember is that these platforms are charging for internet use. Now that means that if you're a user and you maybe log on on the weekends and you're still paying the same price per month or per year to access those servers, then you might not be getting the same benefit as someone who, say, logs on after work every night or maybe someone who binges games and they primarily play video games and don't really, you know, indulge in TV or movies, those people might actually be getting a better experience or more bang for the buck for those subscription services. Just like Netflix, the reason why the company is so big and has such high profit margin is that, well, truth be told, they hope that not everybody who actually pays for the subscription will actually use the service. So they don't need to invest all of that into servers, which means that they get a lot of profit. See, that being the case, that's the reason why we're seeing Microsoft with Xbox Game Pass able to actually give a service that's more akin to Netflix for games. So if that's already possible and they're able to actually release every single game that they are making and publishing right now on Game Pass, it actually allows them to sort of cover the cost. Now, PlayStation might not have something as as appealing as Game Pass, but it still benefits from a monthly subscription cost. Now, besides the actual um, console manufacturers, we do have to touch on the actual publishers. See, not every game made by EA or published by EA is actually made by a studio that EA owns. So in those cases, they might be paying for advertising and, you know, might be making them have those games have a slot on a game show, like, you know, one of the game shows at E3 or perhaps uh, at a award show. However, they are still taking a large cut of the profit. 
So the actual studios are making less because of them as well. So the way that percentages are moved around and the way that the business is handled at, at a very executive level kind of takes away from the studios. So the argument going back to uh, an increase of $10 needed to make software that we currently enjoy is kind of uh, non-sequential. It, it doesn't really add up when you realize that there's a lot of numbers that really just in increase inflation and and just kind of are there to boost profits and don't actually go back into the hands of developers that are making games. So what you're really saying is those $10 would go back to the suits, the people who already have plenty of money to line their pockets. Yeah, you see, if you have executives getting $5 million bonuses, now you, you think about maybe the biggest games. I mean, the, the largest out there, the Grand Theft Autos, the Assassin's Creed's, those are the ones that you can easily say are hitting $100 million in cost. Um, but those are also the ones expected to make in the billions. And and when you couple that with the fact that you have games that are much smaller in scope that still cost $60, think um, when you see your favorite game from across the seas, maybe a Japanese RPG or something, they might not be using the best graphic systems. Uh, the dialogue might not be the best. You know, Troy Baker might not be on it. But that doesn't mean that they aren't charging $60. And it doesn't mean that they, too, aren't making maybe more money out of the percentages once everything gets divvied up. So the issue really isn't we, the consumer, should be paying more. It's really why is it that it is becoming unprofitable for them to make a $60 game? What on their side is causing that issue that they should really look at? So... All that kind of leads up to the fact that it should be the industry itself that ponies up the extra cash and leave our games at $60. And in case you were wondering, the games he was talking about like Grand Theft Auto have been long running and not only have they been long running, but they have been remade and refreshed time and time again, also with microtransaction type things. A point that you might clarify for us, honey, is when you said about Game Pass. Game Pass is a monthly subscription service from Xbox. I champion this service because I think it's a wonderful thing to be able to spread our wings, dip our toes, especially the new gamers like me, to kind of explore what it is we want in a game and what it is we might not be that interested in. But that is, at the end of the day, another cost. It can be justified, sure, buying one $60 game versus paying $10 a month, but there's that magic number again. It's around $10, $15 for Game Pass. So how does that come in to the whole what a game should cost on its own? Well, that's actually a really fair question. When we look at Game Pass and the value that's actually held in there, there are plenty of games, mostly indie, that release day and day on Game Pass. So you can you can choose to either buy those games for full price, or choose to just play it on a Game Pass, and perhaps they aren't your type of game, and you might have saved money, or you find that you love them, but you don't really need to play them after you've beaten them. So the value in Game Pass is quite interesting because. 
when games try to justify a seventy dollar price, and most of the time games go on sale a few months or maybe even a month after release, why would you spend seventy dollars when you can just in your mind say, "Oh, I'll wait till it comes on Game Pass," or "I'll wait till it's twenty percent off," and now you're still paying less than that sixty dollar price anyway. I, I just think that uh, the value of Game Pass is so strong, and the discouragement of increasing the price on something that already loses value so fast. I mean, video games lose value uh, probably just as bad as, as cars. I mean, it's software, especially if it's a digital copy. It, it really has no value. You have a code to access the download, and unless the game is online, they don't even need to pay for servers to let you play the game. I mean, yeah, you're on Fortnite, and that's a free game, and they have to pay for servers, and so they couple that by selling you a skin or cosmetic or a dance and and that's completely understandable because that is your choice but when you go to a game like uh, madden or uh, fifa which is probably the worst uh, those games actually not only cost full price if you buy them at launch but on top of that to stay competitive online you're kind of forced to, to have microtransactions and yet you have game pass which could offer you 2k which has been on Game Pass, and that offers you a free entry to something. And if you choose to decide to pay money on microtransactions through there, well, you can do that, and you haven't actually spent $60 or $70 to play the game in the first place. Or you can play it, say, well, this is fine as it is. I don't need to be the best person online. I don't mind losing a few games, and just enjoy it like that for no additional cost besides the monthly fee so the argument for game pass which yay game pass is one monthly fee for a bunch of indie games and notably not as much mainstream kind of triple a games i've noticed but for the 60 dollar versus 70 dollar kind of kerfuffle let's let's use that one it makes it really hard to even justify the ten dollars on extra game on extra on each game if you can just pay for the sixty dollars each game you want and leave the extra ten dollars or so a month to the game pass is that kind of more along the lines of what you're well, getting at i i think that that assertion is kind of really not up to us in the sense that we, we can't say if we're willing to spend $6,000 on a game besides the fact that we could wait for a sale. It's really just that with something like Game Pass existing and also Ubisoft having their own form and EA having their own form of the same service, there is actually plenty of ways through these monthly subscriptions to play the latest AAA games, especially from the big publishers. So when 2K says they're going to charge $70, the question is, well, if I wait six months, will that mean that I can just play 2K for free on Game Pass? Since they have actually done that, that is something that has actually happened, and it proves that given enough time, even large titles may find their way on Game Pass. So what's the point of spending even more money on them? He got us there, folks. The last thing I want to kind of direct at you is indie games. 
Here, I've championed indie games because it's a, usually a lower cost experience to kind of get into gaming and find some things you might not find on mainstream that might be your type of game. For me, those extra $10, those $60 versus those $70 just might make it a little easier on those developers who are probably, you know, putting their blood, sweat, and tears into this art, into this game that they want us to enjoy and love. Would those $10 really make a difference on the, if we look at it through the indie scope? Well, I think indie games are the most interesting because rarely do you have an indie game that is charging $60. See, indie games are kind of in that sweet spot where they can charge what they feel they need. So if they've worked on the game for two years and they say, well, uh, the studio is quite small and although we have been working on it for two years, we haven't spent that much money, they can go around and say, well, we're going to release this game based on the scope and the work put behind it. We're going to release it for $15 or for $20. And, and the main reason why they can do that is because they're not tied usually to a publisher. And if they are, they're connected with publishers that are used to making games with smaller studios. So those prices don't have to be $60, mostly due to the fact that there's no large marketing behind it and no no budgets that kind of swell with hype and they're able to have more of a so to speak grassroots effort in multimedia with you know social media and with posting youtube videos about the game to create hype in that way see if an indie game does cost sixty dollars it tends not to really be an indie game because those prices sixty dollars or seventy dollars are really set by the publishers they're the people that say, well, we'll put this game out, but the least we're going to charge for it is $60 because it needs to be in line with our other games. Whereas if an indie game is releasing on Steam or anywhere else, they can say, well, we're going to release it for $40 and it's not really a weird price because it's what we need to not only be able to make our money back, but have enough money to work on the next thing you'll love. See, that's really interesting to me because it sounds like mainstream games with these big publishers like EA and all those other ones that really are slipping my mind right now, <laughs> that you, to make a game for us, which in turn comes to us, the consumers, you need to price at at least $60 which only kind of feeds into this monster of microtransactions and how to monetize a game because now you suddenly have to justify why your 30 to 40 dollar game maybe even 20 dollar game is gonna hit that kind of 60 dollar game numbers or worse 70 dollar game numbers so it kind of feels like it's this this monster feeding itself almost like a snake eating its own tail i mean that one's a little bit of a stretch but we'll go with it so any closing thoughts babe that you kind of want to touch on about this whole 60 dollars versus 70 dollars debate you are my resident expert after all well the last thing i'd really want to say to summarize it and wrap it all up is that the 60 dollars to 70 dollars debate at the end of the day is kind of pointless i mean if a publisher chooses to release a game at 70 dollars 
and succeeds, then other publishers might follow. But when you have companies like Sony, Microsoft, and Nintendo, which all produce their own games, all have in-house studios, and can all decide to keep pricing at $60, it only makes the people releasing at a more expensive price seem kind of more outlandish. I mean, I don't see Nintendo starting to price at $70 anytime soon, and I highly doubt that Microsoft is going to stop releasing their own games on Game Pass. So that really just leaves Sony. And I doubt Sony's going to want to raise the price on their titles, which will just make them seem worse than Microsoft. So yeah, 2K might be charging $10 more, but 2K will sell you an addition with a snapback, a uh, hundred thousand virtual credits, and your favorite player on the cover. And you know, these other companies will sell you something good. I mean, Cyberpunk is coming out this year. Cyberpunk 2077, that is. Very, very popular, excited game. It's coming from a very popular studio and publisher, uh, CD Projekt Red. And they're releasing it for $60, giving the people who buy it on the PlayStation 4 and the Xbox One a free copy for the next generation. And they're releasing the best possible copy they can on PC. All of that value, still the same price, plus no microtransactions. Seems like $70 is kind of not necessary. To clarify a little bit of what the heavy was saying, when he was referring to the snapback and the coins, that's kind of what I was talking about when I made my terminology episode and we touched on what a collector's edition entails and what it is. So if you want to know a little bit more about that, I'd check that one out next. All that being said, I really, really hope you enjoyed today's episode and enjoyed my special guest. Thank you so much for coming in. I'll see you guys next time. GG.